It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 303, The Battle of Mandalay. Last time, overall commander in Burma, Harold Alexander, had issued a general retreat for the north of Mandalay on April 25th, in Slim's words, to get out of Burma as intact as we could, for clearly the fighting would continue, but only after the Allied forces retreated, gathered themselves, and only then headed back into the fray. In truth, the retreat orders sapped the morale of most, but not General Joseph Stilwell. To his thinking, the order could have read, Everyone drop your weapons and surrender to the nearest Japanese unit, not unlike what had happened at Singapore or Java. No, here, in Burma, the war would continue. As the Chinese forces had a head start in this dash to the north, Alexander kindly extended his left flank to cover the Chinese retreat, which meant some of his forces would actually be deeper in country as the rest were trying to flee to India. But it was a political decision, one that would hopefully pay huge dividends later on. But besides trying to cover the escape of the shattered Chinese Fifth Army, the British were thinking about their own escape to India. By now, the pursuers had guessed where the British-led troops were heading to, so one of their main goals now was to cross the Irrawaddy at Mandalay and get ahead of the Commonwealth troops to cut them off, which meant getting control of the Ava Bridge, the only bridge across the Irrawaddy, which meant taking it from the Allies. But Alexander and Slim were determined this would not happen or else their troops might have to surrender, thus being trapped. Yet to prevent this very thing, Alexander ordered the 7th Armored Brigade to Mectila, due south of Mandalay by some 60 miles or 95 kilometers, along with the 17th Indian Infantry Division, which was now coming north. Meanwhile, the Chinese 38th Division, still technically under General Slim's command, would hold another town to the west of Mectila, again south of Mandalay, to further guard the British escape route to the northwest. On that same day, April 25th, the leading tanks of the 7th Armored Brigade began to arrive at Mectila. As they did, the British tanks just happened to show up in between some fleeing Chinese and pursuing Japanese forces. Nothing for it, the tanks opened up, scattering the enemy's armor and their lorries full of infantry. By the time the surviving Japanese were out of sight, many of their comrades were lying dead on the ground. Now, this was not a planned out attack by the British, but rather a happy coincidence. The Japanese would be back. 
As for the 17th Indian Infantry Division, it was making its way north to its part of Alexander's defensive line south of Mandalay when it ran into other Japanese units. Again, the fighting was intense, but short, with the Japanese being pushed from the field. Back to the 7th Armored Brigade at Mctila, it again just happened to come across an enemy motorized column. It seems that the Japanese here were not trying to engage, but rather sneak their way past the British-led forces. Why? To head for the Ava Bridge to cut off the defending units along this line. But again, the British tanks and Allied infantry were able to make short work of them. The Japanese troops still alive from this action ran to a nearby village, hiding among the small structures. The 7th Armored was about to enter the village to pursue the Japanese when enemy planes came overhead and chased them away. Eventually, the threat from above disappeared and the British unit made its way into the settlement. By the time it was over, the outmatched and outgunned Japanese had lost another 150 men, 12 lorries, and one large gun. The British losses were two tanks, 10 men, with a few more wounded. It looked as if Slim and company were going to be able to make their getaway. As these reports of small victories kept coming in, General Slim was gnashing at his teeth, desiring to return to the offensive. But it was not to be. Alexander had already issued his orders, the Chinese were exiting as fast as they could, and the hard truth was that the Allies' victories thus far had come against the enemy's vanguard units. If, at any time, Slim had his men stand for a long engagement, the Japanese would have had time to bring more men to bear, and that fighting would have ended, like all the other fighting before this, a Japanese victory. Finally, the Chinese forces, in whatever form, were all north of Mctila, again 60 miles due south of Mandalay. So Slim ordered his forces that had formed this defensive line, specifically Major General Punch Cowan and his 17th Indian Division, to move north by some 12 miles or 20 kilometers to Woonwin, along the main road to Mandalay. Cowan's orders were to hold the city and the road attached to it until 4 p.m. on April 27th. After that, if they could hold out that long, they were to use the road themselves to head north to Kiyuski, which was halfway in between Moonwin and Mandalay. The reason this order had an if in it was, actually, there were several reasons. To be sure, the 17th Indian Division got into position, but then a section of their line was bombed from the air throughout the entire day. Still, those troops hunkered down and held their position. The other reasons had to do with a general offensive on the Japanese part, as they were desirous of rushing the main road and reaching Mandalay, thus cutting off all those Allied troops still south of the city. But this very offensive allowed the Allied troops to focus their response and fire. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. 
They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. That day of April 27th, the last one before the Indians were allowed to retreat further north, its 63rd Brigade was bombed all that day. With this unit tied down, another brigade nearby was hit with wave after wave of enemy tanks and infantry. But the 63rd Brigade could not risk traveling out in the open to help their beleaguered brother unit. Fortunately, the oppressed brigade held their own, handing the Japanese staggering losses as the latter simply charged at the defender's line. Meanwhile, Japanese light tanks were charging up the main road, hoping speed would compensate for their lack of armor. But again, the British tanks of the 7th Armored and the guns manned by the 17th Indian forced all comers back. Finally, the magic hour of 4 p.m. came. The 17th Indian pulled back to the north, but not the 63rd Brigade. The enemy's bombers and fighters were hyper-focused on them all that day. To get out of one's hole or hiding place meant death. It was not until the cover of darkness came that the 63rd was able to safely head north. It wasn't long before General Slim was receiving messages that his defensive line was now redeployed, just immediately south of Mandalay. However, as for getting up-to-date, reliable information on the Chinese, that was simply not possible, as thousands of Chinese troops were heading north in small groups, with no one in command. And it was this dearth of knowledge that led to the first and only clash between Generals Stilwell and Slim. Word got back to the crusty American general that not only had the Western troops given up their rearguard responsibilities, but that the British-led troops were actually farther along in abandoning Burma, and at the same time, the Chinese. This was not true, but the rumors had Stilwell writing to Slim using the most unprofessional language, language unbecoming an officer, as he told the British general what he thought of their promises and loyalty. Of course, a few days later, realizing more of the truth, Stilwell would write again, not to apologize, heaven forbid, but to say that he now better understood the situation from a few days ago, and so was withdrawing his accusations. Now that the balance of Allied troops were near, at, or above Mandalay, and Lachio to the northeast was about to fall into enemy hands, which meant Burmese territory even further north was now open to conquest, General Alexander, on April 28th, gave the order to abandon Burma proper and make for Indian territory. 
Specifically, the 1st Burma Division was to move west of Mandalay to reach the Semikon Ferry across the Irrawaddy. Afterward, they were to make their way to the northwest for the Chinwin River, close to the Indian border. Once there, a brigade was to cross over the Chinwin and hold a position on the west bank, guarding the bridge there. Another brigade was to position itself a few miles west of this first brigade to provide defense in depth for the entrance to India. This would leave the rest of the Corps to move out directly northwest of Mandalay to make for Kalewa, about 120 miles or 193 kilometers away. As this city was also on the Chinwin and close to the Indian border, but just south of where those first brigades were going, it was determined that this would be the corridor that all the civilian and administrative personnel would use, not to mention the thousands of refugees. And lastly, the 38th Chinese Division would stay with Burma Corps as it made its way to India. This Slim had pushed hard for, and Alexander had gone along with the idea. It didn't hurt that diverting the 38th Chinese to India dovetailed nicely with Stilwell's idea to move his Chinese troops to India for proper training. As far as retreats go, this one, at least on paper, seemed to answer all needs. But then, reality reared its ugly head. First, the ferries to the west and southwest of Mandalay were barely staffed with the crossing vehicles themselves, much less the crews to operate them. This was mostly due to frequent Japanese air attacks and the word that the enemy ground troops were well on their way to the ferries, which was true enough. But the various units of General Slim had a standing order to fight rearguard actions as they went north or northwest. The idea was to hold off the Japanese just long enough for the Chinese to clear out and then for the Burma forces proper to cross into India, but also to have additional forces standing by near the Indian border for those enemy troops who might pursue them. As for the ferry shortage, one of Slim's staff officers went into Mandalay and grabbed whatever boats he could that had not yet been destroyed. They were going to make sure the Japanese did not get them, and he had them sail down to the ferry station. Slim applauded this man's proactive response. Next, the control of the Ava Bridge. The only bridge over the Irrawaddy and located in Mandalay, this would determine how fast the Allies could retreat, or how quickly the Japanese would be able to cut them off from that retreat. On the day that General Harold Alexander issued his retreat to India order, April 28th, General Slim, as was his responsibility, broke those broad-stroke orders into more manageable pieces. First, the Ava Bridge would be kept open for the stragglers of the Chinese Fifth Army to guarantee their escape further north. But then Slim realized that he and his were running out of time in regards to holding back the swift-moving enemy. So he asked, and it was approved, to let the 7th Armored Brigade also use the Ava Bridge. This seemed manageable enough. It's not as if they would all be crossing at the same time. And yet, then Slim realized that the 17th Indian Division would not be able to exit the area fast enough 
via the ferries once the infantry backed off their defensive line. So they, too, were to use the Ava Bridge, with a caveat. As the Indians were protecting the last of the Chinese, why not let the 17th use the bridge as well, but only after the Chinese and after the 7th Armored Brigade had crossed? Until then, the 17th was ordered to stay at Cayuxe, about 20 miles south of Mandalay. When all was cleared behind them, then they could cross the Ava Bridge and destroy it. While all this was going on, Slim traveled the area between Mandalay and Kiatse, inspecting the 17th's defenses. Fortunately, the Japanese were not pressing here as they had been, and it's probable that they were just as exhausted as the defenders. But there was another danger taking their place. As Slim rode around, he found, at first, evidence of attacks on refugees. Chinese and Indian bodies were scattered. Then he came upon small, lost Chinese troop units. Slim calmly pointed them to the Ava Bridge. Lastly, Slim and his entourage happened upon a few Indian troops that were repairing a signal wire, but they were now under attack. As for the dead refugees, Slim had been too late to help them. Hopefully, the Chinese would make it to the bridge, but here and now, with his troops under attack, Slim ordered all those with him to go in, guns blazing. At Kyokse, south of Mandalay, Slim found Brigadier R.T. Cameron and his 48th Brigade well situated. Slim could see that the only locals still around, along with their various animals, were all dead. Inquiring into this, Slim found out that the casualties had come from Japanese air attacks, and the 48th Brigade simply did not have the time or resources to deal with the dead. Slim nodded at this, and he could see that Cameron's 1,800 men, broken down into four undersized battalions who had 12 guns, a few anti-tank two-pounders, and some sappers, could hold off any probing attack, but nothing larger. Hopefully, that would not come. It lifted Slim's morale when, while he was at Kyokse early on April 28th, that the last of the Chinese 5th Army came through. Even better, the 63rd Brigade, which had been left a bit to the south to keep an eye on the enemy, had been engaged by Japanese light tanks, but had held their own. The men of the 63rd reported stories of rescuing even more Indian and Chinese troops while taking on armed Burmese. It was obvious these last had been given some training by the Japanese, but they were nowhere near on level with the Indians of the 17th Division. In the morning of April 29th, General Joseph Stilwell finally heard from Chiang Kai-shek. The latter would allow some 100,000 of his troops to be stationed in India for training. Stilwell was excited, but reservedly so. He wrote in his diary, We'll have something here if all this works out. But the reason he was reserved was because, one, he was dealing with Chiang Kai-shek, and two, the latter had written, In principle, I agree with your plan. Still, the Americans sent a message to General George Marshall asking if food and material could be provided for his Chinese troops. Marshall and FDR replied, 
again, not wanting to lose China, a way would be found. Back to the area just below Mandalay, the 63rd Brigade had finally retreated to Kyokse proper, as a large Japanese infantry unit had shown up. And sure enough, at 10 p.m. on April 29th, the enemy came crashing into the men of Cameron's line. Fortunately, his 48th Brigade, now reinforced by the 63rd Brigade, stood their ground. The Indians of both brigades had, by this point, become hardened veterans. Yes, there was fear behind their eyes, but as fear could not help, the men simply settled back and waited for the screaming enemy soldiers to get within 150 yards, and only then opened up with their first volley. It was probably the sheer power of this concentrated shot, but the Japanese charge was broken. The shouting stopped, and the men slunk away. The only sound now was the moaning of those wounded. But the Indians were not naive enough to go out into no man's land and try to help their injured foes, for their comrades would return. Sure enough, a Japanese column then tried to run the gauntlet towards the Ava Bridge. It was soon silenced, but the gunners realized that the enemy had been lost, and in fact not making a dash for the bridge. The two brigades settled down again. Thirty minutes after the destruction of this column, another charge was made by the enemy. But as the Japanese had not changed their tactics, neither did Cameron's men. They simply waited, then struck as one, taking the momentum out of this attack as well. Again, bodies were left unattended on the ground. Another attack came at 5.15 a.m., now April 30th. But the Indians, now feeling something akin to derision for the enemy in front of them, pushed them back as well. And it was probably their string of successful defenses that caused Cameron to go over to the offensive. A village near the fighting was investigated by Gurkhas and a few tanks for support. Sure enough, enemy troops were found and attacked. 38 Japanese troops were killed, a few taken prisoner. The 48th Gurkha Brigade found out that these men were from the 18th Division, a unit they had not fought before. The Gurkhas could not help but tell their prisoners that they were disappointed. They had hoped they had just bested the men of the hated 33rd Division, which they had fought at Yenanyang. Those men they respected, the Indians said. Still, they did want to kill every last one of them. Throughout the day of April 30th, the Japanese heavily shelled the defensive line, hoping to keep them in place, for rushing up was the rest of the Japanese 18th Division. In fact, some of the newly arrived men had started flanking Cameron's line. If Slim needed any other reason to pull the line back, just south of Mandalay, he had it now. If any sizable part of the enemy 18th Division got between this line and the Ava Bridge, all those defenders would be lost. Another attack came at 3.30 p.m., but was held off. Another came at 5 p.m., but this was from the sky, as the bombardments were renewed. At 6 p.m., not waiting for another attack, Cameron started ordering his men back to the Ava Bridge and then across it. 
One battalion with a few tanks stayed in place to keep the Japanese honest. During the last few days, Slim was in Sagang, just across the Aver Bridge, west of Mandalay. There were supplies of all kinds around him, as there probably were at Mandalay. But here at Sagang, there were very few people. Whether they had been ordered to retreat or not, Slim was guessing the vast majority of support staff were currently on their way to the Indian border. For those still around the general front in the two nearby cities, morale was low. Slim did not have time to buck these people up. Instead, he thought about the future. Then, yelling at everyone, he said, I want you to gather all the guns, the ammo, the medical stores, and the boots, and you put them on what few trains we have left. This equipment is not going to be destroyed, and it is not going to be left for the enemy. There's been too much of that already. Everything that we can carry is going to India. Which included, it seems, the Chinese 38th Division. They arrived one day before the general retreat. Unfortunately, one of the division's officers brought General Slim bad news. He told the British officer that another Chinese division was coming, but not to help fight. This general was coming to take all the trains he could at gunpoint to make his getaway. Slim pondered on this as he did not have enough men to stand up to a division, nor did he want to fight with his ally. Finally, Slim came up with another solution. Later that day, the Chinese division arrived. Its general ordered his men to get aboard all the trains in the area and to prepare to move out. Slim just watched, waiting for his moment. Minutes went by and the locomotives were not chuffing, building up steam, or really anything. The Chinese general yelled to know what the hell was going on. That's when, after a quick inspection, the general was told that none of the trains had engines. For that British general over there had all the engines taken out and hidden. The Chinese general, for all of his passive-aggressive attempt at theft, could not shoot Slim any more than the Brit could kill him. In the end, the Chinese commander knew he had been bested. He found a civilian train nearby and stole that instead, heading north and to freedom. Slim would see this general several more times in India as they were training. Neither one had the bad form to bring up the subjects of trains or engines or thefts, and Slim felt as if the man was treating him with a bit more respect than he had at that first encounter. Meanwhile, at the Aver Bridge on April 30th, the Allies started crossing over. Again, the fighting along the defensive line had helped keep the Japanese back, and the enemy's air arm was being careful not to damage the bridge, as they hoped to be using it very soon. Staying behind, wistfully watching all the others cross, the 63rd Brigade was positioned at its southern end to hold their ground. They knew that, by nightfall, they would be the only ones on this side of the bridge, besides the enemy, and the enemy was now building up their forces for another charge. But that's when word started going around that perhaps the British tanks would have to be left behind. General Slim was told there was a problem between the tanks and the bridge 
The latter was only meant to hold some six-ton vehicles, but the steward tanks with them were 13 tons, so the tanks may end up crashing through the bridge, which no Allied soldier, certainly not the 63rd Brigade, wanted to hear. But Slim, having experience in engineering, having been in combat zones in British-held territory, simply asked, Who's the bridge's builders? The staff was puzzled, but after pushing some paper around, the British-slash-Indian firm responsible was found. Slim thought about it and then said, Get those tanks across. For he knew that British engineers normally lowballed weight restrictions on their bridges, and besides, as for the tanks, it was now or never. The tanks started up, the crews probably said a little prayer, and then began to cross. Everyone was nervous, except Slim. Well, he was nervous too, but a good officer never shows this. Instead, his eyes were on the railway as the first tank began its journey. Nope, there was no sagging. Slim let out his breath slowly, not realizing he had been holding it along with everyone else. The first Burma Corps crossed over, as did all the rest of the Chinese troops in the area. Now it was the 63rd Brigade's turn, and they crossed over rather quickly, with not a few eyes looking back. But the enemy did not appear. With this done, the Aver Bridge was destroyed at one minute to midnight, April 30th. Or rather, it must be said, it collapsed into the Irrawaddy about that time, but only after some 18 explosions. It seems that the 3,948-foot-long road, rail, and pedestrian bridge constructed by India's Breathwaite Company in 1934 knew what it was doing. To be sure, the Japanese would find ways across. The race to India was not over yet. Slim started thinking of his remaining problems and again, without realizing it, held his breath. The Chinese troops with him were in a bad state, and like the train-stealing general, some were only thinking of themselves and escape. They had to be watched. Then there was the enemy, along with their Burmese helpers. It was only a matter of time before the Japanese pushed their way up north, up both sides of the Irrawaddy, and then to the Chinwin River, to the northwest. And the path that Slim and his company had to take was really nothing more than an earth cart track through malaria-infested jungle. And all this had to be done before the monsoons came, which could be any day now. Meanwhile, General Stilwell and his small staff of Americans were having the same conversation, more or less. Stilwell was still looking for ways to fight and or to gather up as many stragglers as he could. One staff officer, who had wanted to remain and help the Chinese long after everyone else had wanted to get the hell out of this thankless and impossible task, said, Christ, Joe, let's go home. However, the general was not open to this, so the next best option was put before him. Then let's go to Delhi to start the retraining of Chinese troops. But even this, Stilwell shook his head no to. Why? As he told his men, there has only been defeat, one after another, and all this started with Pearl Harbor. 
Then there was the American defeat in the Philippines. Western prestige has never been so low. It was his job to take care of the Chinese. He finished with, If I run out now, that will be one more defeat, one more surrender. I could not command the Chinese again. Getting back to General Slim, overall, their escape route had been saved, for now, with the destruction of the Ava Bridge. But their retreat was not simply a matter of walking away. The enemy was nearby and would endeavor to cut off access to India. Yes, the Japanese lost the Ava Bridge, but the Allies had just lost Burma and may yet pay for this loss with their lives. Postscript, it was General Lo Cho Ying, General Stilwell's chief executive officer, who had commandeered the trains at gunpoint. Stilwell soon learned and passed on to Slim in another attempt to repair the breach between them as their entire defensive position was going to hell that General Lowe had made it 25 miles to the north. But as his stolen trains were not on anyone's schedule, there was a collision with another train. Stilwell ended his message to Slim by saying, unfortunately, Lowe was not killed. 